This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. In 1883, Samuel Clemens, alias Mark Twain, published his memoir, Life on the Mississippi. In it, Twain describes his love for the Great River and how it captured his imagination from boyhood. In fact, the pen name Mark Twain is probably a reference to what a deckhand on a Mississippi River boat would call out to indicate a depth of two fathoms. These are recordings from a real steamboat worker from 1939. Twain would have heard this call many times. As a young man, he worked as a steamboat pilot on the Mississippi. This was a job that required him to learn everything there is to know about the river. That's Ryan Kyloff. He's a reporter at New Orleans Public Radio. Working on steamboats, Twain would come to memorize every shoal, bend, rock, island, bluff reef, wind reef, eddy, snag, sandbar. And he would learn how all those things changed, when the river was high or when it was low, in calm breezes, high winds, at nighttime and daytime. Twain wrote, the face of the water became a wonderful book. There never was so wonderful a book written by a man. Mark Twain loved working on the river, but he found it came with a price. As he gained knowledge about the workings of the Mississippi, he began to lose something too, his sense of wonder about the great river. Twain writes about this in his memoir. I had lost something which could never be restored to me while I lived. All the grace, the beauty, the poetry had gone out of the majestic river. But not everyone had such a complicated relationship with the river. For many people who lived near the Mississippi, it was simple. The river was a force to be reckoned with. When you're talking about the Mississippi River, to me it's not something scenic. It's this great force of enormous power. This is John Barry, an expert on the river's history. He's served on the levee board of New Orleans and has written extensively about the Mississippi. And the thing to know about the river, especially back then, was that it flooded all the time. A river flood, or at least on a flood like the Mississippi, you can see it coming for weeks. You fight it for weeks. And in 1927, people knew the river was coming for them. For nine straight months, the middle of the country had been getting hit nearly nonstop with rain. And the previous winter, there had been tremendous snowfall upriver in Minnesota, which was now washing downstream. The levees were strained. And in February of 1927, they started giving out. 27 flood was probably worse than Katrina. Roughly a million Americans, almost 1% of the entire population of the country at the time, uh, were flooded out of their homes. That spring, 145 levees along the lower river failed. 27,000 square miles across 10 states were put underwater. It's unclear how many people died, because for one thing, official counts didn't include black people. But the death toll was likely upwards of a thousand. On April 30th, 1927, then-Secretary of Commerce Herbert Hoover discussed the flood on a national radio broadcast. Everything humanly possible is being done by men of magnificent courage and skill. It is a battle against the oncoming rush. It is a great battle which the engineers are directing. 
And you've got to remember, this was enormous news. It dominated uh, the front pages. Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic in the middle of the flood. That's the only thing that knocked it off the top of the news. And after the flight, the flood was back on. In the wake of the flood, Congress essentially declared war on the Mississippi River by passing a law called the Flood Control Act of 1928. Uh, Part of the 28 Act involves studying basically every major river basin. A river basin is all the land that water flows through on its way to a river. So for example, if it rains in South Dakota, anywhere in the whole state, that rain will eventually make its way to the Mississippi which means that South Dakota is part of the Mississippi River Basin, even though it's actually pretty far from the Mississippi River. In 1928, Congress decided to study rivers and their basins, especially the Mississippi and its enormous basin, which includes more than 30 states. And not just study them, but also change them. The Flood Control Act charged the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers with designing and executing a plan to corral and maneuver the Mississippi to better manage its ebbs and flows so that future disasters could be averted. But the Army Corps of Engineers faced a dilemma. The river control system that they had been tasked with creating needed to be huge, much bigger than anything they'd ever built before. And they didn't want to just jump into building something until they knew it would work. They started constructing scale models of different parts of the Mississippi River Basin in order to understand the mechanics of the river. The earliest ones were just ditches cut into the dirt with water running through them. The models helped forecast flooding in St. Louis, the impact of a dam construction in Ohio, the workings of spillways in New Orleans and Florida. But the Army Corps of Engineers wanted a way to test the entire river system all at once. And so in 1941, they started building a model to represent all 1.25 million square miles of the Mississippi River Basin. When you think of a scale model, you might be thinking of something you can peer into at a museum. Not so with this one. This would be bigger than anything that could ever fit into a display case. It is a jungle out there. The Mississippi Basin Model, located just outside of Jackson, Mississippi, is a scale replica of the entire basin region, an area that spans from Appalachia to the Rocky Mountains, nearly half of the continental United States. Um, we'll have to crawl through here. Sure. I hope we don't get your equipment messed up. Uh, it's been through some stuff. I went out to see the model with a woman named Janie Vaughn. She used to work at the model as a technician before it was decommissioned in the early 90s. Janie showed me how to sneak in, right through a wall of poison ivy. And I just always assume that any snakes will, you know, kind of run off. We're also there with former project engineer Wayne O'Neill. I'm Wayne O'Neill. Glad to meet you. Now that we've made it through the ivy, we make our way to this enormous clearing. And this is the beautiful Mississippi River Basin, Mississippi Basin model. Wow. In all its glory. Whoa. Ryan is looking down at a three-dimensional map, a completely man-made landscape full of hills and ridges and a big winding riverbed. Every foot of the model represents 2,000 feet in the real world. If you take a good step, you stepped off a mile. It's hard to overstate how enormous this model is. It's about two and a half times the size of Disneyland, 125 city blocks. I saw some pictures online, but this does not prepare you to see the thing. 
Yeah. Wow. It's awesome, isn't it? It's totally. just, it's just awesome. You just can't take it all in at once. Janie and Wayne tell me that you can really only see all the edges of it if you climb up this four-story observation tower. There's also a water tower looming above the model, with dozens of pipes shooting off in every direction into pump houses and spigots. These big, hulking machines and strange-looking instruments dot the landscape. And what they had envisioned when they built this, it was just fantastic. Back when the model was operational, there were little signs for pretty much every town in the region. Mm-hmm. There would be one for Vicksburg and Rolling Fork and all along. The signs are gone now, but Janie still knows the geography of this place by heart. We're around Baton Rouge, so you can go from Baton Rouge up to St. Louis in about 10 minutes. The Army Corps of Engineers started work on the Mississippi Basin model in 1941, and at first they faced a massive labor shortage. The start of the model came about during World War II. No labor was available. Everybody was off at war. There wasn't troops or people here to do it. So they built a BLW camp here to supply the labor. German prisoners of war helped with every facet of the construction. And they did the groundwork and the, the topography layout and the drainage system for the model. By 1949, the model was ready. A staff of 600 engineers and technicians would calibrate the model by recreating past floods in the region. Then they'd forecast new floods. They would run thousands of gallons of water through the model, recording the water's height and movements. After it was all done, they'd change a few variables and run it again. More sandbags over here, open this spillway over there. They played around with the model, gathering data on how each piece of the river system affected the whole. Then they could use that data to come up with better plans for the future, like they did in 1952, when Council Bluffs and Sioux City, Iowa were threatened with a flood. In 1952, the model predicted where the levees were going to overtop. Over top, as in where the water would spill over the levee. And so they ran the model night and day as they were fighting the flood. What they were doing is saying, it's not going to overtop here, it'll overtop here. Put your sandbags, put your work in this area. And it predicted stages within two-tenths of a foot. Meaning the model mimicked the actual behavior of the Mississippi to within inches. It was credited to saving over $50 million in damage in 52 money. That's about half a billion dollars in today's money. The Mississippi Basin model was amazingly accurate at dealing with these incredibly complex, hyper-specific problems. The model saved the government millions and millions of dollars while it was in operation, and spared people from the kinds of disastrous flooding that had happened back in 1927. But 200 acres of pipes and pumps and machinery and earth movers and a staff of hundreds were expensive to maintain. The cost got even harder to justify after the advent of the computer. Late 60s, early 70s, there was a big push to go into numerical models. And that means computers. Computers, right. Uh, math model. The numerical model people and the core looked at the model and said, well, we don't need it anymore. Too expensive. Too expensive. Gradually, the Mississippi Basin model lost its funding. We saw the handwriting on the wall and it was closing us down. The computer models weren't as good, but they were good enough, and the Army Corps could not, or would not, pay for the gigantic river basin model anymore. The model was used in a diminished capacity until 1993, when it was closed for good. 
Today, it's completely derelict. Damn, this place is depressing. Isn't it? <laughs> Crap. Every time I come out here, it's worse. I know. It's a lot of labor. There's a lot of love and effort and went into this thing, and it is just abandoned. I feel like if I was a teenager, this would be my number one come get high and get in trouble spot. Exactly. Exactly. The pipes and the pump houses are all rotting and rusting away. And in the model, the earth and mud and water have all dried up. Now it's just a disheveled mess of concrete and wire mesh. I've seen the original design drawings of this place. Those engineers were engineers. I would be doing good to sharpen their pencil. You know, the minds that came up with all those pieces of equipment, with the knowledge they had in the 40s, and they're coming up with ways to protect people and make this stuff work. You just don't see engineering feats like that every day. Now, in a normal public radio story, this would be the part where we would bemoan the death of craftsmanship and remark on all the things we've lost by choosing virtual things over physical ones. But before you get too misty-eyed, you have to see where Janie Vaughn works now. How's it going? Good. How are y'all doing? Pretty good. Hey, did you get any uh, poison ivy the other day? I didn't. Did you? I didn't. About two weeks after going to the Basin Model, Ryan met Janie at the U.S. Army Engineer Research and Development Center, Erdic for short, in Vicksburg, Mississippi. I keep forgetting that you actually work for the Army and like badge and the real deal. <laughs> it's not a joke. Yeah. Walking around Erdic feels like being on the back lot of a Hollywood studio. There's row after row of big hangars full of miniature landscapes. There's hangars over there and hangars over there. And hangars with model and model and model and model just lined up. Engineers zip around in trucks and golf carts. They test all kinds of things here, including a few things that have nothing to do with water. In one hangar, I saw engineers developing a temporary airplane runway. They were driving over it with a modified dump truck on 14-foot tires to simulate the weight of a plane. But mostly, Erdic builds scale models of rivers and dams and water projects, albeit smaller, more manageable ones than the Mississippi model. So we're looking at Bluestone Dam in Hinton, West Virginia. It's on the... Uh, New River. A place that actually did flood recently. And the Army Corps' models helped to manage that flood. The Army Corps also uses the models as a public relations tool. The Corps invites people from local communities over to Erdic so they can see how new projects, like building new navigation channels or removing old dams, will affect the area. Engineers at Erdic say they take community feedback and incorporate that into their designs. But here's the most surprising thing I learned about these physical models. The reason that engineers continue to rely on them is because today, in 2016, we still do not have the computers or the science to do all the things that physical models can do. There's actually this realm of human knowledge and of physical behavior and how the Earth works that we don't understand. This is Stanford Gibson, a senior hydraulic engineer for the Army Corps. This is a guy with a PhD and three master's degrees. And even the math he can do isn't sufficient to fully describe what happens in a river. I think that there needs to be a little bit of scientific humility to say, well, maybe some of these processes are outside of our reach, or at least outside of the reach of our generation. Are we going to get there? Well, we'll get closer. 
Believe it or not, hydraulic engineering gets into some of the most complicated math there is. Allegedly, when Albert Einstein's son Hans said he wanted to study how sediment moves underwater, Einstein asked him why he wanted to work on something so complicated. The physics involved happened on such a small scale that we still haven't built equations complex enough to capture them. And so Stanford Gibson, a world-class numerical modeler, is actually one of the most ardent supporters of physical modeling. Because a physical model doesn't require equations at all. The physical model will simulate the processes on its own. And even as Stanford Gibson develops new numerical models, the process is inherently tied to the natural world. When I start a new project, I go and I rent a kayak and I float the river because there are too many processes that you don't understand that you can't represent in equations. For Stanford, the more time you spend on a river, the more you learn its secrets. Kind of like Mark Twain and all those years he spent working on steamboats, learning to read the Mississippi like a book. You know, did you ever read Mark Twain, Life on the Mississippi? I did. So you remember that whole, like, maybe 100 pages near the beginning where he's talking about the Mississippi for him was like this magical, mystical thing imbued with mystery, and that once he learned the river, that was lost to him forever. I remember that moment exactly, because that is exactly not my experience of science. Um, the idea that science demystifies the world, um, I just don't understand that. I feel like the kind of deeper down the scientific rabbit hole I go, the bigger and grander and more magical the world seems. And the same goes for going down the rabbit holes of history and engineering and mathematics and design. If there's one thing I believe more than anything, it's that knowledge creates wonder. 99% Invisible was produced this week by Ryan Kyloth, Sam Greenspan, and Delaney Hall, with Sharif Youssef, Katie Mingle, Kurt Kolstad, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. Mark Twain was played by Ken Teutsch, and Herbert Hoover was Sharif Youssef. A lot of the music in this episode came from some of our favorite, favorite musicians, including Lullatone, Melodium, and OK Akumi. You can get a full list at 99pi.org. This episode is part of PRX's Stories in Science project, supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation to enhance public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced on Radio Row in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. We often don't think of winter as a time of growth or creation, but if you think about it, it's the perfect time to create your own website because you're cooped up, you're thinking about being productive, and now Squarespace can help you do it. With Squarespace, you can take your cool ideas, your creative content, your services and goods, and you can turn them into a beautiful website in just a few clicks. This is because their easy-to-use templates are created by world-class designers, and then you have the ability to customize the look and feel and the different settings for your own needs. For example, my site, romanmars.com, I made with Squarespace. The landing page features a close-up of me talking to a microphone, so it has my, you know, my very handsome beard. But if I should ever shave it, I don't have to wait for my web guy to change the photo. I can do it myself, and maybe the next photo will feature my soulful eyes. On one of the pages, I've also picked out some of my favorite episodes of 99% Invisible to share, and the audio is conveniently embedded, even on mobile. 
Try it yourself. Go to squarespace.com slash invisible for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code invisible to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. You can find this show and like the show on Facebook. All of us are on Twitter, Instagram, and Spotify. But to find out more about this story, including cool pictures and links, and listen to all the episodes of 99% Invisible, you must go to 99pi.org. Radiotopia.